right, well, we're going to get started in Genesis chapter 25. And in this chapter, a number of sort of important milestones in the whole story that is the family that uh, emanates from Abraham happens in this, in this chapter. Uh, and it starts right out with uh, the announcement or the, the revelation of Abraham marrying yet another wife. We see there in verse 1 of chapter 25, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now, remember we saw previously that Sarah had passed and, uh, and Abraham had had her buried in a field that he bought. And, uh, and so now he is taking to wife this woman named Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latorshim, and Liamim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldah. All these were children of Keturah. And Abram gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Now, this woman Keturah, she's identified here as a wife of Abraham. But in other places in scripture, uh, notably 1 Chronicles 132, She's identified as a concubine of Abraham. Um, they had a system uh, in that day that uh, pretty much was done away with. By the time we get to New Testament times, uh, a man could have a woman as his wife, and she would be one who would bear the heir of the family fortune, whatever that is. But then the man could also take an, a, a woman to himself that would be considered a concubine. And a concubine was, was kind of like a secondary wife. Um, she was not a slave, typically. Uh, she was somebody who had privilege in the household to some respect. But she was not someone who would bear an heir for the patriarch of the family. Um, she, could, she would have relations, sexual relations with the man. She could bear children for the man. Um, and this was something that was practiced pretty widely in the, in the days of the patriarchs. But by the time we get to New Testament times, it had lost favor. And then, of course, with the teachings of Jesus and whatnot, uh, things returned to God's original plan of one man, one woman in the bond of marriage. Now, these individuals that are identified here as descendants of Abraham and Keturah are identified with various Arab tribes that would develop over the centuries. And recall that um, when God uh, was giving promise to Abraham concerning uh, that he would be called out, that a special people would emanate from him, he did promise in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, that Abraham would become a father of many nations. We know, of course, that Isaac would ultimately be the progenitor of God's people Israel through his son Jacob but these other individuals that are identified here that were children born to to Abraham through Keturah these become the progenitors of a lot of the Arab peoples that occupy uh, for example the Arabian Peninsula and the areas of the Middle East and so um, 
this promise that God gave to Abraham of being a father of many nations is being actualized right here. Um, we read here in verses 5 and 6 that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but he gave gifts to the sons of the concubines. So that suggests in verse 6 that there were other concubines that were part of Abraham's harem, and they perhaps bore him sons. And we see here that Abraham gave them gifts, and they were probably substantial gifts. They were probably in the form of starter flocks, maybe some servants that could help with shepherding those flocks, uh, maybe some material wealth of some kind, uh, but considerably less than the inheritance that Isaac was to receive. And by this time, Abraham could be considered, if not the wealthiest man in the world, certainly among the elite. You know, he was like a fraction of the one percenters in terms of his wealth. And, and so his, his sons, by the, the uh, unions he had with concubines, I'm sure they made off well. Um, but what Abraham wanted to do was make sure there was no conflict with these individuals and the son of promise, who was Isaac. And so Isaac is going to inherit pretty much the, the bulk of the wealth of Abraham and also the land. And that was the important thing. This is why we read here that he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. They could go and they could make their fortunes there. They could go and they could make their claim to land there. But the land of Canaan, as given by God to Abraham, would pass to his son Isaac. And we know that ultimately it would pass into the 12 tribes when they returned to the land after the Egyptian captivity. So, so that kind of sets the stage. Um, we come to verse 7 now and we read of the death of Abraham. We read there in verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man with full, full, and full of years and was gathered to his people. I thought he was a pretty old man when he was 100 and he was, giving, <laughs> he was bringing Isaac into the world. But apparently at 175, he's finally considered an old man. And, the sons, and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son, uh, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Laheroi. Now, just to kind of put in perspective the timeline of Abraham's life because it's, it's pretty uh, incredible what this man represents in the Bible. Uh, first of all, we don't even encounter the life of Abraham until he's 75 years old. Abraham is called out of, uh, uh, out of Haran by God to go into a land that God would show him, which of course we know is the land of Canaan. And that was at age 75. So he goes to the promised land. It's now 25 years later when he's 100 years old that Isaac is born, the son of promise. And we know in the, the ensuing 25 years, uh, Abraham and Sarah are wondering when this is ever going to happen. Um, Sarah is kind of doing the, my biological clock is ticking. When's that baby coming? So she directs Abraham towards her handmaid, Hagar. They have Ishmael, who is the son of the flesh. Uh, he has to ultimately be sent away. And then at age 100, Abraham 
brings uh, Isaac into the world through his wife, Sarah, who at that time was 90. And then Abraham was 137 years old when Sarah dies. Now, we know that if Ishmael was born when Abraham was 100, that means that Ishmael, I'm sorry, not Ishmael, Isaac, then Isaac was 37 years old when his mother died. And now Abraham is 175 years old when he dies, which would tell us that he had an over a 30-year marriage with Keturah. And by the way, Keturah may have started out as a concubine of, of Abraham, and, she, and that relationship may have existed with Abraham while Sarah was still living. Uh, we don't know that. We don't get a clear sense of that from the text. But apparently, based upon verse 1 of chapter 25, she may have been elevated to the status of full wife sometime after Sarah's death. Um, to understand the significance of Abraham, we have to know that he, he is the one that is used as the sort of gold standard of faith when we consider salvation comes by faith alone, through God's grace alone, in Christ alone. And the, the statement that's always given that, that assures us of that is that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And what that tells us is that throughout Abraham's experience with walking with God, God gave him um, the kind of directives and promises that would require considerable faith to follow them. Abraham is living in Mesopotamia with his father. And then God says, I'm going to take you to a place that I'll show you. Just get up and start moving. I'll direct you. In that day, that, that would be almost inconceivable that you, without knowing where you're going and, and with some uh, way in which God was communicating with him, a still small voice or whatever, he's going to pick up and he's going to go someplace else. He's going to leave his people behind. And yet he did it. And then, of course, we saw not too many chapters ago where God is telling him, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice and the only way that Abraham could, could conceive of doing that is he said, okay, God promised me this son. This is the son of promise. This is the one through whom God's chosen people will come. Therefore, if God, is to, God has given me a promise of this son and he's given me a command to offer him as a sacrifice and the only way I can hold those two things in my mind together and be faithful to both is that I believe that even if I sacrifice my son, God will raise him from the dead. And we know the famous line that God will himself provide a sacrifice, which ultimately is, is the, the vision that we get from all of this of Jesus Christ. But the, the importance of Abraham to the overall salvation plan of God, it's hard to overstate. Because, for example, in the, Old, in the New Testament, Abraham is mentioned more times than every other individual found in the old testament save moses i think moses is mentioned 80 times abraham is mentioned 70 times in the new testament uh, god formed this man to be who he was okay we know that it is god who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure abraham was created as a very special vessel for god uh, an individual that was there to establish the foundation of God's plan for salvation. And so our study of him, highly significant in our overall understanding of what God is doing with humanity. So we move from, from Abraham's death into now a retrospective on the life and death of Ishmael. 
Ishmael, of course, remember, being the, uh, the son of the flesh. He was brought forth through the flesh trying to help God you know, solve, solve what uh, they thought was a problem, which for God was no problem. Uh, so we pick it up in verse 12. Now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, then Adbeel, Mibshem, Mishmah, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jeder, Nafish, and Kedema. Now, why don't people name their kids these cool names anymore? I mean, everybody should have a Nebajoth in their family. Um, but, but interestingly, these, these individuals, these 12 princes, so to speak, again, a fulfillment of God's promise to Hagar and, and to Ishmael, basically, you know, because Abraham was heartbroken when God told him, look, you gotta, you, you got to send Ishmael and his mother away because, you know, the conflict between Isaac now and Ishmael was starting to get real. And this was hard for Abraham to do. And, and God says in Genesis 17, 20, he said, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I, behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and, and will multiply him exceedingly and he shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. And here, of course, we see that promise being fulfilled in the naming of these individuals that are the children that came forth through Ishmael. And again, um, they become uh, heads of tribes that ultimately populate the what we know of as the Arab world. Verse 16, these were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt in Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So, so this is, this is the, the sort of the concluding chapter of Ishmael's life. God did show him favor. God did prosper him. You'd say, yeah, but, but all those nations that came from these 12 individuals ultimately become enemies of Israel to this day. To this day, the descendants of these, these 12 princes, so to speak, are all, or at least for, for hundreds of years, have been dedicated to the destruction of Israel. And you'd say, why would God allow that? And this would take us down the road of a, of a much longer and much more difficult argument concerning the purposes of God as manifested in the governments of people, in the nations of people. In fact, we're gonna, I'm actually going to touch on that in, in session four of our conference coming up on October 1st uh, because you know, there are so many uh, group, people groups or nations and governments that are very hostile to everything that God stands for. They, they, they work against God. Uh, they oppress people. They, they, they are, there's injustice in these governments and all that. And you'd say, why would God allow this? Why doesn't he just smack it down? And yet we know through our study of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, that God has a very determined plan about how the affairs of humanity ultimately reach a crescendo, reach a, a point 
where Jesus Christ will ultimately return. And there's a very set narrative of how that comes about, what the world endures from now to that point. And all of this is part of that plan. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that we can sit back and armchair quarterback it and, and, and kind of say, how could God do that? He either doesn't know what he's doing or he doesn't care. No, he knows. It's very deliberate. And these countries, um, these different people groups have a part in God's plan for sure. So then we read in, um, in verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac. So now the scene is shifting from Ishmael to Isaac. Abraham, this, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. We've already studied that in depth. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. So that tells us that if Isaac was 37 when his mother died, it's three years later when we saw that beautiful scene where Isaac and Rebekah meet in that field um, after she has been brought to him. Um, that was three years after his mother died. And she's the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Pada Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian, and we'll see Laban coming up again in another chapter or two. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Interesting that Sarah, Isaac's mother, was barren, was barren for 90 years, and then the Lord brings forth Isaac, and now Isaac himself has a wife, and she apparently is barren. And you'd say, well, is, is there a connection? There's a message there. It's not told to us specifically in Scripture, but one of the things that we could, we could take from it is that because God's special chosen people are going to come, going to continue through Isaac and Rebekah, I think God is making a statement, both with Sarah and Rebecca, that is to say that the, the, uh, the coming into existence of God's people, Israel, is a very deliberate thing by God. And, and we could stand back and we could look at how this family evolved and, and we could say, but for God, they wouldn't be. Because, you know, two women in that line, the first two, by all in accounts, were, were barren, and yet God placed his hand of providence and grace upon them that they would, that they would have children. And, uh, and Rebecca really cashes in because she has twins. Um, we, we read there in verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. And afterwards his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So, so we see that, you know, there, there's 20 years of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage without children before these twins are born. And, and so, I mean, that's, that's a long time to wait in faith to see God bring forth the promise 
the, the continuation of the promise that was given to Abraham. I think this is often the way it is with us. Uh, when we're praying about something, uh, maybe we're praying for the Lord to, to do something in our lives. It could be, for example, uh, to, to deliver us from some struggle or some spiritual struggle we're having or what have you. And, and we're going through that struggle and we're in the midst of it and we're, we're crying out to the Lord, God, you know, why, when, how will this ever uh, be taken from me or whatever? And we can get impatient, uh, we can get discouraged, and then all of a sudden the clouds part and, and the Lord has brought it to pass. And we, we can never forget that it's not just about the thing requested, but it's about the journey of faith to get to that place, to, to really turn ourselves over to, okay, Lord, have your way with me. I mean, I've talked to other brother pastors who have, who have labored in a ministry and, and had all these grand designs about what that ministry would be, and, and they're laboring in it, and, and it's not turning out the way they planned. Uh, it's, you know, they can't understand why they're not a mega church, you know, and, or, or, or whatever. And then at just about the time where they say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put aside all this ambition and I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to show up. I'm just going to do what God has called me to do. And at the time, at the point at which they kind of stop struggling with their plan, they start to see the clouds part and God's plan unfolds. And as you might imagine, <laughs> It's always better than whatever they had in mind. And so here it is, 20 years later, these two boys are born. And, um, and we get some characteristics of these boys. Uh, the first one comes out, and uh, he's, he's all hairy, and you know, red hair is all over him. And he is named Esau, uh, which basically means hairy. And then and then Jacob comes out. Now, Jacob comes out second, so he's the younger, technically, as far as twins go. The protocol of twins is whoever comes out of the womb first is, is, is the, the older. And, um, and we see here one of the first things they notice is he's got his hand on his brother's foot. He's almost like he's trying to pull him back in so he can move out ahead. Uh, and they call him Jacob, which translates roughly into heel catcher, supplanter. Um, it, it, it connotes a, a, an individual who will, by hook or crook, get ahead of you, so to speak. And, um, and so um, he's, he's named Jacob. Uh, one thing I want to mention, though, about Sarah's inquiry, I'm sorry, Rebecca's inquiry of the Lord, back up there in verse 22, where she goes to inquire of the Lord because she's wondering, I got this rumbling, you know, um, the baby, maybe at this time she only thinks there's one baby. There's a lot, a lot going on in there, or maybe a lot of contention or, or what have you. And she seeks the Lord. And I, I just want to open up uh, for our own understanding or our own uh, consideration this process of seeking the Lord on, on a question or on a, on a matter. Um, we find ourselves as Christian people doing this all the time. It's, it's part of the benefit, shall we say, of being a child of God is that he invites, we just saw this yesterday with the men in the men's study, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. 
And, and when we approach God in, in a way of asking, in, in, a for, in a way of praying supplication, there's a way to do it, I think, that the Bible kind of prescribes. Um, obviously, the first thing we do is we pray. We come to the Lord in prayer. Uh, we don't just sit there a hoping and a wishing and, uh, you know, feeling like somehow uh, a cloud has got to come over us and uh, the answer's got to drop in our laps. Here's what James says in his epistle, James 1, verses 5 and 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, now, Rebecca would be a classic example of that. Something's going on in her womb. It's concerning her. She does not have wisdom of what's going on because obviously it's inside her body. And so if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him or her. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Uh, for, for let not the, that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. One of our brothers tonight, Ken, praying when you were praying, um, you were basically making that point that we pray with confidence. We pray with, with faith that we, what we ask for is being heard and it's answered. Now, we don't take that over the cliff and say that exactly what we ask for and the way in which we want it to be delivered is going to happen. We, the confidence we have when we ask in faith is we're going to get the right answer because those are the only kind God has. And so we pray expectantly, God is going to answer us. And the answer is going to be perfect, even if it is not exactly what we asked for. And so James is saying, look, when you pray, pray in faith. Pray in the faith that God is there listening. God is there to answer. And then the second thing that I think the Bible kind of urges us to do when we're seeking wisdom from God, when we, like Rebecca, have something going on and it's like, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on. The second thing we should do is be in the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, verses you know well. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so being in the word, I like to think of it as the word of God is kind of the lexicon through which God speaks to us. And you might say, yeah, but I mean, goodness gracious, a lot of this, a lot of it's history. Some of it's poetic uh, how is God going to speak to me about my nuts and bolts everyday life problem I have right now? Well, if you've been walking with the Lord very long and have been a student of the Bible, you know as well as I do that it's uncanny how God can take a passage of Scripture that seemingly is disconnected from my life right now and yet it's not disconnected. In fact, it's on all fours, on all points, and it is speaking directly to me. I think I mentioned to you one of my favorite devotionals for the morning is that little volume called Daily Light. And Daily Light is, is simply 365 uh, individual entries of scripture verses from all over the Bible that are built around one verse. That's the theme verse at the top of the page. And then underneath that theme verse is verses from all different places in the Bible that support and embellish that theme. And it is so 
therapeutic. I mean, it is just, so, it's, it's like medicine to, to look at the scripture in that way. And so praying, praying over scripture, allowing God to speak to you. And then thirdly, make sure you evaluate what you think you hear. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, someone has shared with me that they were seeking the Lord. The Lord told them to do thus and so. And you listen to what they say is, this is what the Lord told me. This is what the Lord has me to do. And you say, really? Are you sure? Oh yeah, this is definitely what the Lord's telling me. But when you start to deconstruct it with them, what you see is that that can't possibly be God's will because it goes against his word. God would never give you direction that is in contravention to his word. God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't have to because he knows everything from the end from the beginning. And so we have to make sure that we check what we, what we think we hear. Uh, another uh, litmus test that I like to, to think through is, is this answer that I think I have glorifying to God or is it just glorifying to me? I mean, that's a legitimate question because our purpose as Christians is to magnify and to glorify Jesus Christ. So if we're asking for something and we think we've got an answer that, yep, it's green lighted, and then we put it through that litmus test of, is this glorifying to God? And in a sober evaluation of it, we say, mm, not really, but it sure does a heck of a lot for me. Um, then I would just simply say, be careful. Okay, so Sarah, I'm sorry, Rebecca, she goes through this process of inquiring of the Lord. He tells her there's two nations that are there in her womb. Um, the twins will each father nations. But interestingly enough in the message, he says that one will be greater than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now, we might say, well, it's the way it goes. But in this time, in this period of time, it was convention that the oldest son got the double portion of inheritance. He was the individual that kind of was viewed as the uh, heir apparent, if you will. I mean, look at the British monarchy. It's exactly that model, right? Um, Prince, uh, Prince Charles now is king because he was the oldest. And so, and, and goodness, the, the inheritance he got from the queen is, is amazing. And that's exactly how it worked here. And so for God to say before these individuals are even born that, that the younger is going to be over the older would, would have been something certainly uh, out, of, out of convention. It would have been unusual. And here's where we have to understand that there's a principle that's established with these two twins that helps us to understand the sovereignty and, and the, um, the providence of God. God's, God's sole and exclusive right to choose in these kind of matters. And the Apostle Paul, for example, in speaking in the book of Romans about God's chosen people, why God was able to choose them as he did, why them over anyone else? God chose them before there was Abraham. Was it, was it based on merit? Is this fair? And Paul makes a case in the book of Romans. I, I want you to just turn there for a moment. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, 
between verses 10 and 16, he uses the example of, of Esau and Jacob to, to establish this point that God has sovereign choice and he makes choices that may to us seem unfair, not warranted. And I think what Paul is trying to make sure we understand is we don't get a vote. Uh, he says there in verse 10 of Romans 9, he says, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that, he per that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that is a troubling statement. We say, well, God is a God of love. God loves unconditionally. He loves without accountability. That's kind of what the world would tell us. No, what this statement is saying, first of all, let me just finish what Paul is making as a point here, is God has the sole providence when it comes to his divine election. We know, for example, that you and I as Christians were chosen before the foundations of the world. There was never a time when we could prove our goodness. There was never a time when we could establish our godly character. There was never a time when we could do anything for God. And yet he elected us that we would ultimately, in the course of our mortal life, find him. He would find us and we would be saved. And so, and, and that also applies to God's chosen people, Israel, um, that, that God chose them over all of the peoples that would ever be brought onto the earth. He chose them and he chose them for his reasons. Now, that comment that Paul makes about Jacob, God loved and Esau, he hated, this flips people out. This, this troubles people because it just sounds so unfair. Well, that, that statement was Paul quoting from Malachi Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And when people get all worked up about Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated, they don't understand that, okay, well, this comes, that statement comes from Malachi. And they, they're taking the statement out of the context in which Malachi authored it. If you look at Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the Lord, uh, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So Malachi now the prophet speaking to Israel and he's speaking on behalf of God. I have loved you. Who? He's speaking to Israel. I have loved you, Israel, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Clearly in this context, the word Jacob is being used as another name for the nation Israel and the word Esau is used as a title for the nation of Edom and God has indeed showed favor to Israel and has showed lack of favor and in fact has brought judgment upon Edom and that's what Malachi is saying. When Paul uses it in chapter 9 of Romans, the, the hate of Esau, it's not, it's not in the case of I hate you as a person, I don't care for you and I want to end you. 
I think of it more like if I am doing some work in the home, which my wife can attest to is a rare event, and, and, and I need to turn a nut. I, let, let's say, well, not too recently, we did some work on the kitchen faucet and there was a, a big nut that needed to be turned with a wrench so that it would stop leaking every time we pulled up the little handle. If there was some tools there, and someone handed me a screwdriver, I would hate that as a solution for my problem because it doesn't solve my problem. I would love to have a wrench. I would hate to have a screwdriver. Nothing personal to the screwdriver. It's simply not suited for what I'm trying to do. And this is exactly in the way in which there's God showing favor to Jacob. You are going to be the next in line as a progenitor of my chosen people. You, Esau, you're not suited for that. Now, the interesting thing is God said that about these two men before either one of them came out of the womb. So you'd say, well, how did God know the character of these men? How could he possibly do that? Doesn't matter. By the way, Jacob was not a perfect man, as we'll see. Esau, however, was described in Scripture as a profane man. In fact, we're going to get to uh, these individuals, but I just, I just have to share with you this, this statement that uh, is attributed to uh, Charles Spurgeon. In teaching this passage, uh, one of his congregants came up afterwards. It was a woman, and she said, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon's response was, um, that's not my problem. I don't have any trouble with that. I have trouble with understanding how God could love Jacob. You know, and, and you, when you think about it, it's amazing that God could love any of us. It, it really is. And, and this is one of the things that uh, in a transferable way, and, and you got to be careful how you bring this because this is, it's bringing it into a very sensitive situation. But I've, I've comforted as many pastors have people who've lost loved ones. Um, I think I've mentioned to you before. In fact, we've prayed for uh, our grand nephew, um, Landon who died of cancer at the age of three. He was born, and six months after he was born, he's diagnosed with a rare form of aggressive cancer, and it ultimately takes his life. And, uh, and his mom was understandably blown away by the loss of her son, as, as any of us would be. And, and the one word of comfort to offer to somebody in that situation is, okay, it's tragic that... He never got to be four, five, 10, 20, married, children, any of that. I, 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 mom, I, dad, I did not get the chance to enjoy my son for decades. And, you know, and that's true. But we can't forget that you had the blessing of that little boy at all. How many people in this world? Well, Sarah was one. Rebecca was one for 20 years desperately want a child never have one um, think of hannah who prayed for a son she was so grateful when god gave her that son that she gave him back to the lord and so uh, we, we just have to understand that these kind of things you know the the mind of god is is way past what we can understand and um so we carry on here 
Verse 27, so the boy grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now here are two verses that um, in further study, I've, I've realized that often they are taught in a way that provides a false impression of both brothers and I will plead guilty here and now that I have perpetuated that problem in past times when I've taught this. But in looking at a commentary by a Jewish scholar, who obviously is a Hebrew expert, um, I come to a different view of this. Uh, according to him, this is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is who's a very well-known and very respected uh, expositor and commentator on the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. He brings out the idea that Esau's identification as a skillful hunter and a man of the field is not as macho and, and laudatory as, as it seems. I mean, I know in the past I've taught and I know I've heard many others teach that Esau was a manly man and, and he was a guy that was, you know, who, who, who was a great model of manhood. And Jacob was kind of a mama's boy, you know. He wanted to just stay inside and do domestic things and, you know, bake nice cakes and stuff. And, and that's not actually what comes out of the original text. The description of Esau as a hunter is, is more pejorative than it seems as we read it in English, much the same way that Nimrod was described as a mighty hunter. And, and Nimrod, the, 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 stake, the, the stick on, on uh, Nimrod was he was a mighty hunter of people. He was a man who was very forceful in the way in which he dealt with people. He, in a selfish way, as most powerful men can tend to be. And that same kind of connotation is directed here at Esau. Equally, um, this characterization of, of um, Jacob as a mild man, the word that's translated from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is tam. And tam actually means whole, complete, blameless. In other words, he was somebody who, from a character standpoint, was more put together than this so-called mighty hunter. Uh, for example, that same word, Tam, was used in the description of Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, where the Lord is kind of bragging on Job to Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my son Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless or tam, an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And so we can only question why this characterization um, in Fruchtenbaum's view, it's because of preconceived notions about these two men as we come through church history so that by the time uh, the Bible is being translated into uh, English, that unfortunate uh, mischaracterization kind of came through the text. Hebrew is not my area, so I share this with you as somebody who is, is listening to and reading from another commentator who certainly knows the area better than me. But, um, but I think... That particular interpretation of the description of these two men is borne out as we see their lives develop in the succeeding text and chapters. Um, for example, picking up verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. 
Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, Edom means red. Uh, somehow he's, he's associated with this red stew. And Edom is a place where ultimately Esau's people settled. It's kind of in the southern part of Jordan, kind of near where we visited. We were in Petra. And if you see the way the sun hits the rocks uh, in the later part of the day, they look very red. Um, we read in verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. <laughs> He'll catch her. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now a couple of things to keep in mind. One is when Esau says, um, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? He's not crawling in on his hands and knees in starvation. Again, this is a little bit of a, a mischaracterization in the, in, trans, in the translation. But what he's saying is, look, we're all going to die someday. I'm going to die someday. Uh, I'm not going to really have the enjoyment of that birthright anyway. So uh, the birthright is something down there. Uh, the bowl of stew is right now. I'll have that. And this is part of the reason why ultimately um, he is described as a profane man in Scripture. He's described that way because he's, he's taking lightly something that is considered very important. The birthright that goes, that passes from the Father, carries with it both a significant material benefit, but also a spiritual dynamic to it. Because the individual that would have the birthright from his father, first of all, would be made certainly considerably more wealthy than his siblings. But secondly, he would be considered now the leader, both from the standpoint of the governance of the family, but also from a spiritual standpoint, he would be considered the leader of the family. And, uh, and yet he, he discounts the importance of that. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, crave that status in his family, which again is why commentators, when they see him described as a hunter and an outdoorsman, they don't see it as a compliment. They see it as somebody who's really all about himself and doesn't have a sense of the family unity and what God is trying to accomplish through that family. Now, there's another curious thing about this. We could look at Jacob and say, man, what a, what a shifty guy is he? But the truth of the matter is that the deal, so to speak, that Jacob is proposing to Esau is a bogus deal because Jacob is trying to buy something that he already has and Esau is selling something that he doesn't have. God had already decreed the birthright is the younger son, Jacob. So that's coming to him anyway. And Esau is not giving up anything because he never had it in the first place. And so this whole thing, there's blame on both brothers' parts that Jacob would think he needs to act to gain something that God has promised. And Esau is to blame because even that it wasn't his, him thinking that it was, didn't value it at all. And so we see these are very imperfect men. Now, interesting that uh, we could look at this and we could be very judgmental of Esau about his profanity of despising of his um, birthright. But consider this, and this is where we'll close, and I apologize for taking you some minutes past our time, but 
This, this was a quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he said, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities, choose time rather than eternity, and the pleasures of sin for a season rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God and adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men spend more time shaving than on their souls. Multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. Men still sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. And nothing could be more true. I mean, if you want to understand your birthright, we won't do it now, but read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We studied that not that long ago. And, and what do we promise there? Every spiritual blessing. Blessings of being chosen in Jesus. Adoption into God's family. Total acceptance by God in Jesus. Redemption from the slavery of sin. True and total forgiveness. The riches of God's grace. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And how many times uh, do people consider that and just reject it out of hand? Or how many of us who actually possess it, unlike Esau, who really didn't possess it, yet rejected it, we do possess it. And yet we could find ourselves living for things that are much more base than what God has promised us. And so uh, let us not be numbered with the profanity that was Esau in despising the birthright that he thought he might have had, uh, which was being God's people. Uh, we'll end there and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. Uh, we thank you for the lessons of the lives of these men and women, Lord. And uh, much like they were, we are imperfect people. And we should never think that it's beyond us that we could despise the considerable riches that you have made possible in our lives through your son, Jesus, Lord. Let us forever have our eyes on him. Let us cling with all our might to the birthright that he has given us and made possible for us, that new and living way that he has opened for us, that we might indeed come boldly before the throne of grace to seek the Lord in time of need, Father. I pray over my brothers and sisters here tonight and those that are watching online, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would, you would make yourself known to them in ways that would be unmistakable and totally reassuring, Father. Thank you for meeting us here tonight. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Bless you.